you take your Bibles in hand, please turn now to Luke chapter 5, where we'll pick up at verse 12 this morning as we continue our verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter journey through this third gospel. Luke chapter 5, picking up at verse 12, this is on page 861 of the church Bibles. While he, that is Jesus, was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy, and when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one. But go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Amen. Let us ask the Lord's blessing as we come to study his word. Lord our God, we do pray that you would open now the Word of God to us and apply it to our hearts. We long to see glorious things within your law. We long to see our Savior more glorious and delightful than we've ever seen Him before. And so we ask now for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. May He bless the preaching of the Word. May He help us to attentively listen to it, and all for your glory. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, there are times when, when you're reading a book or, or reading an article and you come across a statement, a phrase that is so enormous in its understatement that you can't help but wonder, first, how it got past the author's fingers as he wrote, and then, secondly, how it ever got past the editor's red pen as he reviewed it. As I was studying this passage this week in one of the commentaries I read, one of the commentators wrote succinctly that leprosy was an unattractive skin disease. Now that's true, but it enormously minimizes the absolutely devastating effects that leprosy had on those who were afflicted by it. To the leper, especially in first century Jewish culture, their unattractiveness was the least of their problems. Now, we have to understand that the term leprosy in Scripture refers to more than what we understand by the word leprosy. When we talk about leprosy in our world today, we are almost always talking about what's otherwise known as Hansen's disease, that disease that attacks the nerves and produces numbness in the extremities and in the ears and in the eyes, and which results in blindness and, and physical trauma. You've, you've, you've seen images of those afflicted by Hansen's disease. They are losing, they have lost digits, they have lost limbs even, they are afflicted with deep wounds and severe burns. And we tend to think of leprosy, we think of that, what, what some have called the painless hell. But when we read the word 
leprosy in Scripture, it's probably best that we set aside, actually, what we know of Hansen's disease and, and all of the images that it conjures up in our minds. And we have to realize that the word that's translated as leprosy in our Scripture, as we learn when we follow the editor's footnote, is that actually what's being described is, is far greater than Hansen's disease. It is a word that is being used in our Bibles as a catch-all to refer to various different skin diseases, which all brought with them significantly and centrally ritual defilement. Now, Leviticus 13 is our, is our defining passage for how we are to understand leprosy in Scripture. And if you turn to, to, to Leviticus 13, you, you, you realize that the word translated leprosy, the word sara'at, is used to describe a great variety of skin afflictions that manifest themselves in, in different ways. Skin afflictions that, that if we weave together the symptoms are, are ranging from things like eczema to dermatitis to psoriasis to even favus, a kind of honeycomb scabbing on the skin. But, but none of it seems to really apply to Hansen's disease. In Leviticus 13 and 14, guidelines are given to the priests about how to properly identify these various kinds of sara'at, these various kinds of, of skin diseases, so that the priest might know how to categorize those who come to him with these blemishes and know what place they can have within the community and, and when they can be restored to full membership within the community. Now, these diseases might not quite carry the horrors of Hansen's disease, but we still have to realize that, that for the leper, this was always far more than an unattractive skin disease. You see, the, the worst thing about contracting one of these afflictions was that those afflicted by them were considered within Israel as ceremonially unclean and therefore were excluded from their communities for the duration of their illness. So, Leviticus 13, verse 45, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean, he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. One commentator noted that the most terrible thing about it was the isolation that it brought. The leper was to cry, unclean, unclean, wherever he went. He was to dwell alone in a habitation outside the camp. He was banished from the society of men and exiled from home. The result was that the psychological consequences of leprosy were as serious as the physical. At times, the leper was hated by others until he came to hate himself. Well, Leviticus 13 contained provisions for, and, and really when we read it, Leviticus 13 fully expects that those with these sin afflictions would be afflicted by them temporarily and would one day be restored to the community. The reality was that as long as the disease lasted, these men, these women, they were isolated and lonely, excluded from the community life of Israel. And we might wonder why. Why were they sent out from within the community? 
We might think, surely, in a, in a community that is to be characterized by, by love and care and compassion, as we see all the way throughout the Old Testament, surely we want to take care of those afflicted by leprosy. Why on earth would we send them outside of the camp to such a lonely and psychologically taxing situation? Well, undoubtedly, part of the reason was to prevent against any potential spread of the disease. Although it seems that most of the conditions that are described in Leviticus 13 are actually not contagious, but perhaps there was a thought that, well, we want to exclude the disease so that there's not a contagion take place within the community. And that may be be part of it. But more than that, the exclusion of the leper was actually rooted in who Israel was conceptually called to be as a nation. Remember, everything about the Old Testament nation of Israel rotated around the central fact that they were to be a model community on the earth that they were to be a foreshadowing of the great kingdom of heaven, the great kingdom of God that is described in the Gospels as coming now in Christ's arrival. That's been Luke's big running theme since the beginning of Jesus' public ministry in chapter 4, that that, that in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 61, which Jesus preached at Nazareth, the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee has arrived, It is the chapter 4, verse 43, gospel proclamation that the long-awaited kingdom of God was now at hand, that the new world of wholeness and joy and peace and restoration and fundamentally reunion with God was finally here in the arrival of Christ. But you understand, until the arrival of Christ, Israel had been set aside by God as a a model community of that new world, a, a community that was designed to illustrate and embody and whet our appetites for everything that would come to fruition with the arrival of Christ. In Genesis 3.15, God had promised, you remember famously, that evil would not win the day. Evil has just come into the world. The, the devil has successfully tempted Eve and, and Adam away from fidelity to God, and, uh, and humanity has, has fallen. But, but into it, God gloriously declares that evil will not win the day, that He would bring a Redeemer, a son of the woman who would crush the head of the devil, who would destroy evil, who would restore the people of God to everything that they had lost in Adam's sin. But of course, it was hard to believe. Think about the world of those first chapters of Genesis, or, or, or maybe just think about the whole book of Genesis. If you didn't know anything about it, and you were just handed the book of Genesis and told to write a book report on it, what, what's the theme of Genesis? You, you might be tempted to say that the theme of Genesis is that evil always triumphs. Think think about what is is happening here. God God has promised that a Redeemer would come into the world, but what happens in the the chapters that follow Genesis 3? A downward spiral until we get that devastating statement, don't we? Genesis 6, every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. It's a world in which the godly line seems to always be corrupted by fools and miscreants. 
A world in which even when God saves his people through all of the, through all of the storm and saves them from themselves, it is a world in which they are then brought down at the end to be slaves in Egypt. The promise of Genesis 3.15 seems so far away, but, but into it all, what does God do? He establishes Israel. He, he saves his people. He preserves them through the godly line at the end of Genesis, becomes the mighty nation at the beginning of Exodus, and God brings them out of their slavery, and he establishes them as this holy nation on this earth, this model community that was to be a living foreshadowing of the new world that would be established through the work of that Redeemer. If you go to England on vacation and have a chance to, to travel around, you, you might find yourself in Buckinghamshire. And there's a place in Buckinghamshire, it's, it's the oldest model village in the world. There's a claim to fame. Beck and Scott, model village and railway, a, a village that is built at a one inch to one foot scale. And it encapsulates quintessential England. It has, it, has, it has railways, uh, cricket pitches, football pitches. It's got replicas of, of notable English buildings, samples of distinguish, di, di, uh, distinctive English architecture. It, it, has a, uh, it has a cathedral, it has a, a castle, it has pubs. And at Beckenscott, you can walk through it, and all the buildings come up to about your waist. And you get this glorious overview of everything that is forever England. That's what Israel was. A one inch to one foot replica of this glorious kingdom of the redeemed that God had first promised in Genesis 3.15, that he had then expanded in his covenant with Abraham and which he had brought to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. In the life of Israel, you could get a foretaste of that coming new reality, a kingdom of people marked by their union with God, their lives shaped by the law of God and their whole existence, modeling, demonstrating, proclaiming the hope of this coming new world. And that is what lies behind all of the rules and regulations of Leviticus. Maybe you're, maybe you're there and you're reading, if you're, if you're there, if you're following the, the McShane plan, you're not there yet, but, but you know it's coming, right? You're coming through Exodus and you know Leviticus is coming down the pike and you're beginning to brace yourself a little. Maybe you're there, depending on the reading plan that you're using, and you're in the midst of Leviticus and you're scratching your heads and you don't want to think, I just have to get through this, I just have to get through this, but on honestly, you probably are. Well, to help you understand it, here's this great interpretive principle that behind all of these rules and regulations, behind all of these ceremonies and sacrifices and feasts and festivals that are contained in the book of, Le of Leviticus, this is the principle that they're all there for, that Israel was to be this great demonstration that the life of God's people is a life captivated by our redemption and reunion with God. It is to be a life of worship pinned to the atoning work of Christ. 
Now, we don't have time to unpick how that all applies in the book of Leviticus. Maybe one day I'll have a sermon series all the way through Leviticus. What a joy that will be. But if we're honest, Leviticus is confusing and it's bizarre and it does take work to unpick it all. And, and there are times like Leviticus 13 when, when even these rules and regulations can seem distinctly cruel. But what we have to understand is that behind all of this is this great principle that, that Israel was to be this model community of this new world and so they were to be a place of wholeness and they were to be a place of life. And the leper, those afflicted by these defiling skin diseases, struck at the very heart of both of these things. The, the leper carried a corrupted body that was symbolic of death. A body visibly corrupted and, and therefore unwhole, and a body that, that carried the marks of deterioration, which, which symbolically were to be understood as, as representative of the decomposition of the body after death. Now, now we don't have to even go so far as to, to think of what we think of leprosy, Hansen's disease. And the sometimes zombie-like appearance that, that those afflicted by it can assume with their blind eyes and their lost limbs. But just think even of, of these diseases that we've talked of already, eczema and dermatitis and psoriasis and, uh, and, and favos. They give the, the, the visual representation of, 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 of corruption and, and decay. In the words of the, of the Green Mile, the, the leper was symbolically a, a, a dead man walking. That's why they had to wear mourning clothes. You hear that in, in Leviticus 13, they were to wear torn clothes and, and un, unkempt hair. Those, that's what you did when you entered into a state of mourning in the Old Testament. Or, or you think about how, how Aaron describes Miriam in Numbers 12, when she's afflicted by leprosy, he, she is described as, as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. A, really a grotesque image of a, of a stillborn child that has already begun to decay. The, the leper was a, a living metaphor, an outward representation, we could say, of the inward state of the soul in sin. Right, last week we said that the miracle of the fish and the scene that precedes this one is an enacted parable. Well, lepers in Israel, we could say, perhaps were living parables. And those bodies marked by death could not be present in a community whose whole purpose was to demonstrate the life that was to be found in reconciliation with God. And so they were put out of the camp for the duration of their illness. And as such, they were representations to those still within the communities of the wholeness and holiness of their lives in union with God. They were outside the camp, but yet living testimonies to those inside the camp of a, a promise of a coming day when all corruption and death will be put out, put away, and a new world of holiness and wholeness will be established in its place. And of course, it was a representation to the lepers themselves 
of the depths of their own spiritual need. Like we've said it, haven't we? The Leviticus 13 can seem so cruel. We think of that loneliness of being excluded from family and community, being excluded from the worship of the community at the temple. We tend to think of it as a lifelong affliction. But as we said, Leviticus 13 anticipates a time when that disease will be healed and there's provisions given for that man to be brought back into the community. Even Miriam was restored after seven days. But, but apart from that, we need to see that for these lepers, there was built into their affliction a minister of grace. If you just think about it, who, who other than, than them could, could best feel deeply their need of the saving grace of God and the restoring grace of God? For the duration of their illness, they carried in themselves a minister of grace that reminded them that the creation, Romans 8, is groaning under the weight of sin, that that the spores of death have spread far and wide and touched and tainted everything. While the leper was excluded from the worshiping community, it is likely that of all people in Israel, it was the leper who prayed most fervently for the coming of the Redeemer and for the renewal of the world. It was likely the leper who prayed most fervently for the day, Revelation 29, where there would be no more disease and no more death, no more mourning, no more tears on the earth. It was the leper who would pray for the day when the last tear had been shed and wholeness had been brought back to bear on all of God's very good world. And Christian In that, there is something instructive for you as well. How are you to process and and grasp and wrestle with afflictions and sorrows? Well, there are, of course, many different aspects to the answer to that question, but at least in this way, to see in them your deep need for the restoring work of God in Christ to see them as the needs of a fallen world, not just writ large, but brought near. So often we convince ourselves, don't we, that that we're okay, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. We can convince ourselves that that life is good and, and we really don't need saving from anything. But when injury or illness settles in, when death draws close, when death comes too close in the death of a loved one, or or even when you feel that deep gut-wrenching conviction of sin, you understand there is woven into it a minister of God's grace to you, opening your eyes to see a glimpse of your spiritual predicament. It is a minister of God's grace to help see you how much you need the restoring work of Christ. And that certainly seems to have been this man's experience. I'm not told where this happens, only that it happened in one of the cities. At the end of chapter 4, Jesus had said that he had to go and preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. The gospel of his arrival and the realization of everything that had been foreshadowed and anticipated of him in the Old Testament was and is a gospel that is to be proclaimed far and wide, a hope for the world so that any and all can come and hear and cast themselves upon Jesus and faith and receive the manifold blessings that are found in him. 
And as Jesus comes to this anonymous city, and as He preaches the good news of His arrival in this city, this man, this man who, who Luke notably describes not just as having a skin disease, but being full of it. Do you understand this is the idea that this man doesn't just have a patch of bad skin? This is a man covered head to toe in this dermatitis, this psoriasis, this eczema, whatever it is. But there was no hiding it. He might wear long cloaks. He might even put a hood over his head. But, but it's on his face. It's on his hands. It's on his feet. He's, he's full of it. He's covered in it. But this man is so confident in what he has heard about Jesus, or perhaps what he's even heard from Jesus, that he comes up to Jesus and he begs him to heal him. This man gets it. He has joined the dots, and he understands the depth of his predicament. Perhaps, perhaps if we might use our sanctified imagination for a minute, we're going beyond what Luke tells us, but, but maybe we can, we can imagine the scene. Maybe this is a man He's been diseased and excluded from the community, but, but instead of it causing him to grow bitter or hard, perhaps he's become like Simeon. Right? You remember how Luke described Simeon in the, in the temple? Simeon, old Simeon, who in the temple was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Maybe, maybe that's how this, how this affliction has been a minister of God's grace to this man. And it is so driven into his heart the corruption of sin in the world, and it is driven into his heart the, the inward depth of his death of his soul that, that needs to be revived and renewed by the, by the grace of, of God as he has borne the sickness, as he has borne the loneliness of his condi condition, as he has felt the weight of, of sin's corruption of God's good world. His, his heart has been poised in faith and expectation. And he has spent his lonely days praying for the arrival of the Redeemer. Praying that he would see the day when the Redeemer would come and, and make all things new. The day when evil would be crushed under his foot and, and everything that Israel had symbolized would come to its glorious reality. Perhaps this man in his loneliness had spent his days, he had redeemed the time, and he had prayed, and he had prayed, and he had prayed that Israel would be comforted by God, and that they would see the outcome of their faith in the arrival of God's Redeemer. And as he sees Jesus, as he hears Jesus, like Simeon in the temple, he knows who it is. However it happened, it, it happened. This man's heart somehow had been primed. And Luke tells us that as soon as he saw Jesus, he fell on his face before him and he begged him to make him clean. It's interesting, isn't it? But the man doesn't ask him to heal him, but he asks him to make him clean. The man knows that his ultimate need is not simply that his skin be better. Now, he would know that, that if his skin was clear, then he could go to the priest as Jesus commands him to do in fulfillment of Leviticus 13, 14, and he'd be restored to the community. His shame would be removed. His uncleanness would be taken away. But, 
But I think in this request, what this man is showing is that he knows his need is, is more than just healing. He knows that this ritual uncleanness represents his actual uncleanness, his inherent uncleanness within him. He knows that he is a deep defilement that cannot be cleansed simply through the removing of an outward disease. This man needs a cleansing that cannot be given by doctors or the application of ointments. This man knows that his need can only be satisfied by the Savior. And so he comes to Jesus and he falls before him. Now, this took tremendous courage. Remember, by the first century, the idea had taken firm root that this kind of affliction was the direct consequence of a specific sin. Do you remember how, how the disciples had asked Jesus about the man born blind in John 9? The man comes up to Jesus, he's been blind from birth, and the, the disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? Now, to their minds, this blindness had to be the consequence of some specific sin. And they ask him, Jesus, did, was it that this man's parents sinned while his mother was pregnant? Or, or did this man commit some kind of strange in utero sin while, while still a, a, a fetus? To their minds, it had to be one of the two. Some, this blindness had to be the consequence of some sin. And it was the same with leprosy, no doubt in, in part because of their exclusion from the community, and, but, but also because there are times in Scripture where we see leprosy as a sign of the Lord's discipline for specific sins. Right? Think of Miriam, who we've referenced a couple of times already in Numbers 12. Why, why does Miriam become a leper? Because she had rebelled against the Lord in opposing Moses. It was the direct consequence of her sin that, that she became leprous like snow, as we said, as, as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. Miriam sinned and became a leper. Or think of King Uzziah in Second Chronicles 26. Uzziah in his pride enters the temple and presumptively offers incense on the altar of incense. Uzziah, Uzziah sinfully confuses the office of king and, and priest, which can only be bound together in the Messiah, in Christ, in Jesus. And for his presumption, the Lord humbles him by afflicting him with leprosy for the rest of his life. Uzziah sins, he becomes a, a, a leper. And, and to the first century Jewish mind, that's it all of the time. If you're a leper, it's because you sinned. You, you deserved it. This is a consequence of your actions. And so as this man comes in, not only does he have to find the, the social stigma of, of breaking those boundaries and coming into the community, this, this fear of con contagion that, that would have been uh, around, he has to also fight the religious stigma, that he would have been viewed as so great of a, a sinner that he had been marked out by God by his leprosy. But this man is so convinced that Jesus is the one who can cleanse him, Jesus is the one who can make him whole, make him new, that he fights it all to get to Jesus. And notice how he approaches him. When he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him. It's a posture of worship, isn't it? Matthew tells us that this man came and knelt before Jesus, bowing down before him, worshipfully submitting to Jesus as the only source of his hope and healing. This man comes and he puts all of his eggs in one basket. 
He doesn't approach Jesus as one who might be able to help him. He comes up and casts himself on him as the only source of his hope and restoration. It's a demonstration to us of how we should approach Jesus. Luke has given us grand visions of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. We've seen his glory in his battles against the forces of evil. We've seen his glory in bringing restoration to a sin-twisted world. We've seen his compassion and and how he has dealt with those who have come to him. And Luke brings us here and he says to us, dear reader, this is how you come to him. Having seen Jesus as the one in whom alone the longings of your heart are to be found, this is how you respond. Like like this man, You, you see, you can't come to Jesus as an insurance policy. You can't come to Jesus thinking, well, nothing else has worked, so, so I might as well give him a shot. Or, or thinking, well, I, I really don't think there is an afterlife, but just in case there is, I'm going to come to, to Jesus. I'll become a, a Christian, just in case. What was Augustine's famous quote? Christ is not valued at all unless he is valued above all. That's what this man is doing. He values Christ above all else. And so he comes in worship and adoration. He comes in faith and dependence, not just hoping that Jesus might be able to help him, but, but, but knowing that if Jesus just wills it, then, then he will be cleansed, he will be renewed, he will be made whole. It will happen. What is it that we sing? Every joy or trial falls from above, traced upon our dial by the Son of love. We may trust Him fully, all for us to do. Those who trust Him wholly find Him wholly true. But what Luke is saying is it is only those who trust Him wholly who find Him wholly true. I wonder this morning if you are trying to live with a foot in both worlds, holding on to Jesus, but not too tightly maybe praying Augustine's other infamous prayer, his more youthful prayer, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. A desire to play with sin, the desire to keep your favorite sin, all the while looking to Jesus for the forgiveness of those very sins. Here, Luke is saying to you that you can't do that. Those who find Him wholly true or those who trust Him wholly. He's saying this is how you lay hold of Christ and receive the riches of the kingdom that He is establishing. This is how you come to Him if you want to receive the benefits of His glorious salvation. You come to Him wholly, entirely in humility and dependence, crying out, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. If you just say the word, if you have pity upon me, if you have compassion and grace on me, I know wholly and entirely you can make me new. You can restore my soul. You can bring me into your glorious kingdom. And what happens? In a split second, this man is healed. Immediately, Jesus, uh, Luke says, immediately the, the leprosy left him. In an instant, his living death was transmuted into life. And, and that's it, isn't it? The promise of the gospel, not a pie in the sky when you die, but the promise of new life in fellowship with God here and now, the present joy of reunion with God, the present joy of coming into the Lord's favor. 
And it's yours the minute, it's yours the second that you reach out to Him and ask for it. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that in Adam all die. That's what the lepers embodied, our living death in sin, that we are dead men walking. That's the reflection that you're meant to see when you, when you look at a, a leper in Scripture, that reflection looking back at you, proclaiming 1 Corinthians 15, 22, that, that in Adam all die. But how does Paul finish that verse? In Christ all shall be made alive. That's the promise of the gospel to you this morning. That's what this man received. That's what Luke brings you to see in this encounter, a man dead but in an instant made alive as he cast himself in faith and worshipful obedience upon Christ. This isn't just a story. This is, a, this is an embodiment of the gospel promise being held out to you. So what are you waiting for? Come to Him. Admit your needs. See your defilement. Come to Him. And He will make you new. He will make you whole. Let us pray.